From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. I'm Tammy Katzoff, and in each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Alan Wolf, class of 1976, who is a professor of microbiology at Loyola University, Chicago. I sat down with Dr. Wolf at Loyola University Stritch School of Medicine in Maywood, Illinois, and we began by discussing the physical space in which his office is located. So this is the Center for Translational Research and Education. It's a brand new building. It's three years old. It's all glass. I finally have a window. (laughs) The building you're looking at is where we used to be. And I was Uh, in a cinder block cave uh for about 25 years. Wow. And who gets to be there now? I have no idea. (laughs) And I don't care. (laughs) Right. Ultimately, they're going to take it down. Oh, okay. But uh, this building is, it's five floors. When you're on the fifth floor and you look that way, you see the skyline of Chicago. I get to see the back end of this old building. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're on the second floor. Yeah. It's an open lab setup. As you guys saw earlier, there are lots and lots of benches and bays and all the different groups occupy that space. So there's a lot of interaction between the people working at the benches, all the offices of the faculty, many of the students and staff, postdoctoral fellows are in this space on the other side of the building. This is where most of the research is done on this campus. There's another building next door. It's a cancer center where there's other labs. Mm-hmm. We're a relatively small research entity in a much bigger medical campus. Mm-hmm. So most of what you see on campus is all hospital. And on the other side of this, we have a one mile square. The other side is a, is a VA hospital, Veterans Administration. And many of the clinicians have joint appointments. So they, there's a lot of walking back and forth between the two. Get a lot of steps in. They do. <laughs> I try to avoid it. <laughs> nice. Okay, so let's get right in and talk about your work. Can you talk about the different foci of your research here? Sure. I have two different types of programs. One's very basic science, and the other one is what's called translational research. So let's start with the basic science, because that's what I started with about 40 years ago. In fact, the initial experiment that has led to the work that I'm doing happened when I was a postdoctoral fellow at at Caltech. I did an experiment and no, actually, I'm sorry. We moved from Caltech to Harvard and it was at, at when we were at Harvard. We did an experiment. We were trying to figure out the signaling pathway that allowed bacterial cells to sense their environment and either swim towards attractants or away from it. And that signaling pathway had not been figured out yet. And I was using genetics and molecular biology cloning. I ripped out all of the machinery so that it couldn't signal, but it had a a functional flagellar motor. So it's a rotary motor. It goes clockwise and counterclockwise. And those two different directions determine whether the cell goes forward or whether it reorients in space. We had completely deleted all of the machinery and started adding pieces back in by cloning. And then we added acetic acid to the cells. Vinegar is acetic acid, right? Mm-hmm. And the cells, we didn't think that the cells would respond to that. We were just trying to do something called, it's called clamping the membrane. But we were going to drop the pH of the medium and try to get the internal pH to drop along with it. And we were using acetate to do that. But the cells responded to the 
addition of acetate before we had changed the pH. So they weren't responding to pH, they're responding to acetate. It turns out that bacterial cells take up acetate, they activate it, and they use it to modify proteins. And we were the first ones to discover that. What it's led to, you know, some 30, 33 years later, is that we now know that bacterial proteins acetylate, uh, excuse me, bacterial cells acetylate their proteins. This is well known in eukaryotes like human beings. If you've ever heard of histones, histones get regulated by being acetylated and with other kinds of modifications. It was thought that bacteria didn't do that but they do. So we're a leader in the field of bacterial acetylation, trying to figure out, first of all, how do the cells regulate the acetylation? How do the enzymes work? And what's the consequence? I just graduated a student with a PhD who discovered four new enzymes in E. coli. So instead of one, there's now five. And as of Friday, we now have some evidence of what some of those enzymes are doing, because I have a PhD student who just joined my lab a few months ago. He made a discovery based upon a collaboration with the guy next door. His student was defending his PhD, and I sat there and went, uh, you know, <laughs> what they're doing is connected to what we're doing. And so we got some reagents from them. We did an assay. Tom did the assay. And sure enough, we got the effect that we are expecting. So now we have, we have some evidence of what the acetylation is doing uh, because we, to one, one of the targets, one of the proteins that gets acetylated. I, I know I'm not being very precise, but it has, it has everything to do with the cells consuming carbon sources like sugars, like glucose, and being able to determine whether it should increase the flux of carbon through metabolism or should dampen it. So make it very personal. Should you eat more or eat less? Bacteria cells have to know whether or not they're couch potatoes or they're starving, just as we do, right? If you eat too much, you don't feel so good. If you don't eat enough, you don't feel so good. So it's very, very tightly modulated. And this acetylation that I'm talking about, this modification of proteins, is cued into that flux. The acetyl donors are all members of the, the metabolic pathway. And one of those acetyl donors is, one, is a small molecule that we have in our cells. The other one, only bacteria make. So that's my basic science. Basically, the way I describe it is I'm trying to figure out the circuit board inside E. coli. Okay. How does it know where it is? How does it respond to its environment so that it's optimized for that environment? And it's a great puzzle. It's really good for students and postdocs to come in and determine whether or not they, they can figure out really, really complicated puzzles where most of the puzzle pieces are missing. So if you like crosswords or acrostics or things or Sudoku, this thing is a <laughs> way, way beyond that in terms of complexity, Right. where you only can see a little bit of that jigsaw. You don't have a picture. You got only a handful of pieces and you're trying to fill it in. And it takes you 30 years. Wow. <laughs> Each student comes in and takes a little piece of it and fills a little bit more in. Sure. And it's really exciting. So that's the basic science side of things. After doing that for um, about 30 years, I walked up to a urogynecologist by the name of Linda Brubaker. Urogynecologists are those surgeons that take care of women that have sort of a urinary tract gynecology problems like overactive bladder and recurrent UTIs, prolapse, fistulas, 
They fix female plumbing. And I walked up to her and I said, we have two words in common, E. coli. You want to kill it? I study it. She said, let's talk. And we sat down every once in a while for about an hour. During one of those conversations, she said, you know, some people think that the bladder is sterile. And I said, no way. I was a little more colorful in my language, but I said, <laughs> no way. For someone who studied bacterial motility and chemotaxis and biofilm formation, there's no way. I mean, it's 30, it's 30 millimeters between the vulva and the bladder. That's the length of the female urethra. That's a day trip for E. coli. How could it be sterile? Our situation was, uh, okay, we decided that we were going to test the dogma that the bladder was sterile. That's fine. How do you do it? So we had two problems. Well, three problems. We didn't have any hands. <laughs> we had no money to do it. Uh, we didn't quite know what assay to use. And we had to figure out how to get urine directly out of the bladder to avoid the contamination of, you know, if you pull it through the the vulva, that's a very, very highly colonized part of the, of the female anatomy. So somewhere along the line, a number of things happened. One is Linda had $25,000 from a grateful patient. So with that, we hired a technician who did all of the original work. So there, that solved our hands problem. Mm -hmm. Well, most of it, $25,000 is enough to pay a technician, but right. Right. I had a little bit of money that I could add to it. Then we learned about something I learned something that's called suprapubic aspiration. That's a needle through the lower abdomen directly into the bladder. So you could pull urine out through the abdomen. The patients were all going into surgery. It was the least worst thing that ever happened to them that day. Right, right. So they were out. You consent them and they said, sure. And so we took suprapubic aspirate. We took a sham needle stick where the needle went in but didn't go all into the bladder for bacteria that might be in the tissue. And we took a skin swab where the needle went in. We also took catheterized urine, so a catheter through the urethra into the bladder. We took vaginal swabs and we took voided urine. And what we found is, is that the suprapubic aspirate and the transurethral catheter provided similar results. We were using urines from people who, where the clinical microbiology lab said that they were sterile, that there was, they were culture negative. So we were looking for DNA evidence of bacteria in a standard urine culture negative sample. And I say DNA evidence because we finally figured out what we should do is next generation sequencing. It had gotten cheap enough to do it. So we did DNA sequencing. We took the urine samples, we took all the swabs, and, and we, in the urine, we broke open whatever cells might have been there, mm -hmm. bacterial cells. We extracted the DNA, we amplified it using something called PCR, polymerase chain reaction and then sequence snippet of DNA that we had amplified. And that piece of DNA, uh, there's enough information, sequence information to, to be able to identify the bacteria. And what we found is that the supposedly sterile bladder urine had lots of different bacteria in it. We had DNA evidence. Oh. So I then went to the director of the clinical microbiology lab and said, Paul, his name's Paul Schreckenberger, and he was our the next person that we recruited into the group. And I said, Paul, I look at the genera that we can sequence, the bacterial genera. These are not unculturable. And he says, yeah, they just don't grow under the standard urine culture conditions. So I said, we need to grow them. We need to prove that they're alive, right? 
And so he set up something that he called Expanded Quantitative Urine Culture, or EQUAC for short. My graduate student established it in the lab. She reported it at the ASM annual meeting, the American Society for Microbiology. Got, she got interviewed by uh, ASM Live. This was several years ago. And um, we had demonstrated that there are live bacterial communities in, in women's bladders. Mm. And so now the question is, is who are they? What are they doing? Who's good? Who's bad? How do they interact with each other? How do they interact with the host? How does all this relate to human health? When does it get established? Do you get a bladder microbiome when you're a baby? The answer is yes. We haven't published it yet, but we have the data. And we know that there are certain bacteria or, or different communities that are associated with things like overactive bladder. We know of some bacteria that are associated with being healthy. So these are potential probiotics, Mm. right? And we believe that diseases like recurrent UTIs, which are chronic and a real problem for people, are probably not the same disease as an acute UTI, that they're really quite different, and that we're focused maybe on the wrong organism. Mm. Everybody thinks that E. coli is the most important recurrent UTI pathogen, and we're not convinced. (laughs) There are others. And the reason is, is that we're now using both our EQUAC, our culture, our enhanced culture technique and DNA sequencing, 16S sequencing, and something called shotgun metagenomic sequencing that, sh- that allows us to detect virtually all of the microbes that are in the bladder or in the urethra. And so we're seeing more of the truth than our predecessors. Mm. So we're collecting all this information and trying to figure out what to do with it. It's clear that there was a whole bunch of knowledge that was missing. And we now, we have a lot of the, the background knowledge. Like I said, what we're trying to now figure out is, what are they all doing? Mm-hmm. You know, how do they change a student that just defended his PhD two weeks ago? Travis Price convinced eight women from campus, they're medical students and postdocs and, fellow, and clinical fellows and graduate students, sample themselves every day for three months so no one's ever done that before it's a commitment (laughs) by them and him because he lived in that bsl2 room that i showed you earlier for a year i swear he he, he slept in there oh boy now a little exaggeration but (laughs) in any case um we now know at least in eight 20 to 30 year old 20 somethings and 30 somethings premenopausal, healthy young women who know what they're doing. They're scientists and clinicians, so they know it's important (laughs) to collect samples properly, right? We now know the daily dynamics, and um, we're writing up a paper right now, but it's fascinating because some women, their urinary microbiome is pretty stable. It's mostly lactobacillus species, just like in the vagina. Uh, and it stays pretty stable day after day after day. There are other women who have two or three different communities that keep changing. So if you have A for two or three days, and then you've got community B for two or three days, and then A and then B, and then A and B, <laughs> and it can be lactobacillus dominant and Gardnerella dominant. Gardnerella is an organism that's associated with bacterial vaginosis. Although in the bladder, it seems to be a good player. <laughs> okay, in the vagina, not so good. There's another 
pattern where it goes from staphylococcus to streptococcus to back to staphylococcus. And we found two things that disrupt these patterns. And it doesn't matter whether you've got a stable or a varying pattern. If you menstruate, it all changes for several days. Mm. No big surprise, right? And if you have vaginal sex, it changes. And the vaginal sex is interesting because whereas the menstruation patterns are individualized, the disruption, the change, it seems to be, it's different depending on which woman you're following. <laughs> With sex, it's exactly the same. And no every one of these are, were sexually active women. <laughs> and whatever their pattern was, when they had sex, streptococcus showed up the next day. And it stayed for a couple of days. And what's fascinating is, is that we have some evidence that it came from the male partner. And whereas the lactobacillus protects against E. coli, which is a pathogen, and the lactobacillus protects against streptococcus, we think that's the reason why the streptococcus disappears after a day or two or three. Streptococcus doesn't inhibit E. coli. So this woman doesn't get sex-related UTIs. But if she, was, if she did, or she had been exposed to E. coli or another pathogen, her protection, lactobacillus, got dampened for a couple of days. And if she was exposed to a pathogen, she could get a urinary tract infection. So that's our model going forward. We can't prove it at the moment. Mm. But it is a new model for why some people get what used to be called honeymoon UTIs mm. back when people had sex for the first time on their honeymoon. Mm. So we're, these are the types of things that we're doing right now. In 2014 was about the time just after the, the movie, The Martian, came out. So everybody had seen it. Many people had read the book. And I said to my group, I said, OK, we've just landed on Mars and it's not sterile. <laughs> It'll be four years before anybody gets up here. We have to figure out what it is that we're going to do so that we can tell them how to study microbes on Mars. <laughs> and oh, by the way, this is our rock. <laughs> Go study that rock over there. <laughs> And grow potatoes at the same time. Well, they feed us. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the speed of what happens around here. Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's a lot of things that happen over a very slow, lengthy period of time. But some things happen much quicker. Absolutely. You, you've summed <laughs> that up very nicely. Thank you. This work goes on for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, 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 is very often you're working at it for a while and then you get it a result that sparks an idea or or a result that tells you that your idea is correct. So literally that business I told you about acetylation earlier, the student defended two weeks ago from the neighboring lab. That's when his seminar was. That's when after hearing his work for all this, I'm on his PhD committee, but it didn't strike me until that day that what we should do is get their reagent. Tom grew the cells up broke them open, ran them out on a polyacrylamide gel, for those of you who know what those things are, and did a Western blot with their antibody. And we looked at the data on Friday, this past Friday. Well, we now have to order new stuff because we now know what experiments to do. I now can think about what my next grant proposal is going to look like. So the work that, the setup work was all work done by my student and our collaborators, the student who defended earlier this year, and that was five years worth of work. So going into that seminar with the background that I had, something that we published last year, knowing those results, they're sitting in my head, and I'm looking at 
you know, a PowerPoint presentation at the front of the seminar room. And I'm going, oh, my God, this is what we need to do. And I was right. Tom did that work. Now we can move ahead more quickly. So things, they operate that way. So it sounds like some good traits to have if you are working in this industry are patience, but also adaptability and being ready for anything and being ready to act on it. Yep. It's perseverance, Mm -hmm. patience. You have to stay calm. (laughs) You have to be willing to have lots and lots of failures. Mm. Most of the time things don't work or we've thrown out way more hypotheses as being wrong than we've ever shown to be correct. Right. (laughs) A phrase that you'll hear in the business is another beautiful model destroyed by a dirty little fact. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we switch directions really quick. You can't be an aircraft carrier. You got to be a destroyer. You got to be able to turn on a dime. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's fast. We're competing with each other. Um, We're competing to be the first to publish. We're competing to get grant dollars. We're competing for fame and, you know, it's not, not money. There's not a lot. (laughs) If you want to get rich, this is wrong business, but you can be comfortable. It's very, very competitive. It's a lot of alpha type of individuals, but it's also extremely collaborative. All the work I've described is done with, so the acetylation work, I've got five different collaborations. There's a guy at Brookhaven. He's a structural biologist at Brookhaven National Labs. There's a chemist that does mass spectrometry at the Buck Institute in uh, near San Francisco. Uh, there's an enzymologist who did her postdoc, who did her graduate work at Loyola. Postdoctoral work here at Northwestern is now an assistant professor at San Francisco State. And there's a faculty member who's a chemical engineer at the University of Illinois Urbana Champaign. And they're all collaborators on our acetylation work. They haven't heard the latest. I can't wait. <laughs> the microbiome work, we've got clinicians, urogynecologists, urologists, nephrologists, maternal fetal medicine docs, mm. infectious disease docs. They're all working with us. We have bioinformaticians, biostatisticians, immunologists. We're connected to the clinical microbiology lab and then my microbiology group and then a handful of other types of individuals. So when I put my acknowledgement slides up for the microbiome work, there's no white space. <laughs> my font size is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. Pretty soon you won't be able to read it. It's not just me. It's a whole cadre of individuals that um, work together. The days of doing science, you know, man and but it used to be called man and boy science, pretty much over. Most labs have to collaborate with other labs sure. uh, to get the work done. What do you like most about your job and what do you not like about your job? Well, I'll start out being a little facetious. Okay. When I'm sitting on an airplane and someone leans over and says, what is it that, you're do- that you do? Because they, they see like I've got my computer open or I've got papers, that, you know, I'm, I'm reviewing or writing a paper or something. And, and I'll turn if I'm feeling in that sort of impish kind of mood. And I say, well, I play in an adult sandbox all day long and I teach others how to play in that sandbox. Mm. (laughs) Or to put it more formally, I get to solve puzzles every day. I get to solve my puzzles. I get to do the work that I want to do. There's no one tells me what I can do. The only limiting factor is getting grant dollars. Right. I got to have the money to pay the people to do the work. 
to cover some of my salary, right? And as long as I can convince a group of my peers at the National Institutes of Health or at the National Science Foundation, or I can manage to get a contract out of a, you know, some sort of company or such, uh, then I can do my science. And I, f uh, I simply follow the clues like Sherlock Holmes, mm. right? And I get to teach others how to do that. I really enjoy that. So I have people in my, you know, I have graduate students and master's students, PhD students, MD, PhD students. I have postdoctoral fellows. I have clinical residents, clinical fellows that work in my lab. And uh, every summer we host either high school students or undergraduates where they'll work for eight weeks and they get to experience what it's like to be in a research team and do real science mm. where we don't know what the answer is at the end. There's an unknown, but no one has the key, <laughs> you know, as opposed to organic lab <laughs> where somebody knows what you, what they gave you and what you were supposed to have figured out. I really like that. The students, you know, they have, I get them when they're 24, 25, they leave when they're 30, 31 and they go off and they follow the rest of their career. Many of them keep in touch with me. That's a lot of fun. And then, you know, when they leave, I, they get replaced and I get an, a new crop of mm -hmm. young people and I get to stay young. <laughs> uh, I get to find out what I don't know how to do. My ability to work with machinery such, computers and such, has gotten much better because I actually confess to the fact that I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> and how should I be doing this? I don't mind writing grant proposals. I mind spending my entire time trying to fund my research. There's not enough money to go around. This is where your tax dollars go to fund the work that I do so that I can help the clinicians diagnose you more properly and treat you more properly. If you have overactive bladder or you have recurrent UTIs or, you know, how do you defeat a pathogen or make better biofuels? In fact, the National Science Foundation funded us for three years because they wanted to figure out how to do a better job of converting sugar that comes from plants into more biofuels and less into waste bacterial waste products. Mm. And that's what we're doing, the metabolism. Honest, if I didn't have to another write, another, write another grant proposal, if someone handed me millions of dollars for the next 10 years or so, I would be a really happy camper. <laughs> I'm in a very great department. I have a wonderful chair. It's been my chair for the entire time that I've been here. I have wonderful colleagues. It's a fantastic department to train in and to be a faculty member in. It isn't always the case, not at all places. Um, so I don't have a lot to complain about. Mm. I don't mind if I was paid a little bit more. <laughs> I'm the lead on all of these grants, and there are lots of people on the grant who who I'm training how to do science, mm. they make more money than me. Mm -hmm. It's kind of annoying, yeah, but I'll live with it. Be. Yeah. <laughs> so my only complaints really are, it has to do with money. Mm. I'd rather not have to think about it. Sure. But the reality is I have to. And if I, you know, I could go somewhere else and make more money, but I wouldn't control my own decisions. Someone else would be. So I can live with that. Okay. You, you've been in, in this industry a, a little while uh things have changed since you started so can you talk about 
the, the big things that have changed since you started and then talk about how things will continue to change in the future within microbiology. Okay. One major thing is the funding. It used to be when you became an assistant professor, you'd write a grant. Almost certainly you'd get it. You'd keep that same grant for 30 years. And just about the time that I became an assistant professor, it all changed. <laughs> and I was unprepared for it. It was a change that people, at least the people that were training me, didn't foresee. Mm-hmm. So I struggled in the beginning. Um, so there's, it's more competitive. There's more money, but there's more people doing the work. The science has gotten more expensive. I used to do most of my work with toothpicks, picking colonies on plates. Now I'm doing very, very uh, high-end, very sophisticated DNA sequencing. And some of our experiments can cost, well, we're going to send 30 samples to a company that are going to do a particular type of sequencing that we can't do here. Mm. It's $3,000 for 30 samples. You got to have the money to do the work. And oh, by the way, that doesn't count the prep work that we have to do. It doesn't count the money it was to get the samples. Mm. And it doesn't count the money that will be done after we get the data back and try to figure out what it all means, which is even more expensive. So the science has gotten more expensive. It's become more collaborative. I mentioned that earlier, Mm -hmm. right? It used to be that you could run your own lab. You'd have three or four people in the lab and you were a self-contained entity. It's not a strategy for success any longer. It's very collaborative. Uh, The NIH keeps talking about transdisciplinary research. Mm -hmm. This is different from multidisciplinary. It's like, okay, you got fruit. You make a fruit salad. That's interdisciplinary. Mm. You do something else to it. I forget what it is. And that's multidisciplinary. Transdisciplinary is you turn it all into a smoothie. (laughs) Well, that's what we're doing because we interact daily with all of our collaborators Mm -hmm. or almost daily, especially the, the microbiome work. It takes an effort by all the different groups of individuals and most of that interaction occurs at, it occurs at different levels. I talk to the senior people, the senior clinicians and bioinformaticians, and my people, my graduate students and fellows are talking to the clinical residents and fellows. We're talking to the nurse coordinator who's making sure that the samples get to us and, and that sort of thing. So mm. it's very, very integrated. There's more demand for translational science. I don't know why NIH made a new term. It's just engineering. It's taking basic science and converting it to something. So you take the the basic science, the knowledge that there are these things called electrons, and you turn them into wires and radios and TVs and computers and semiconductors. That's translational science. There's the difference between the scientists who figure out fundamental truths and the engineers who go, I can do something with it. So there's more engineering of biomedical research they call it translational research there's more of that Mm. less of the dig down deep and try to understand fundamental truths i can tell you a lot of us would just love to just dig add knowledge to the you know global database the reality is is that we have to be translating i'm sitting in a building called the center for translational research and education they named that this on purpose right (laughs) And this was three years ago. Three years ago. ago, yeah. Well, I guess they named it five or six okay, years yeah. ago. When the, <laughs> so I think those are the things that have changed. Another thing that's changed, and that is the preparation. When I was an undergraduate at Muhlenberg, 
you know, I took all the science classes, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I took general chemistry, organic chemistry. I took physics and I took biochemistry and I was pre-med at the time. Ver you know, vertebrate morphology, you know, dissecting a cat and uh, fetal pig and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. No one told me about research. There was a little research going on on campus, not much. There weren't summer internships and programs that we were aware of. I didn't know that you could do science in a lab until I left Muhlenberg. I mean, remember, I decided to go to, back to school not to work in a research lab, but because I knew I needed more education. I didn't want to do the kinds of odd jobs I had been doing. That's a whole other story. Okay. And they were pretty odd. Today, there's a lot more undergraduate research done by undergraduates that's led by professors at liberal arts colleges, mm -hmm. yep. which, by the way, I think the liberal arts college route is the best place to go. Yep. My daughter, yeah. my daughter went to Beloit College here in southern Wisconsin, just a couple hours away, and it was fantastic for her. My son did the big state college thing because he wanted to play Division One soccer. Wow. So he went to UNLV and it was a very different experience mm, for him. And sure. He's not in science. <laughs> but um, the idea that undergraduates are told they can do research in labs on campus. Mm. I mean, I don't know much about Muhlenberg's program. I know it exists. Oh, yeah. Definitely. But I know a lot about programs at Swarthmore and at Kenyon College and at several colleges nearby because we get those students that, not only that, but then they get summer internship opportunities. My daughter did that. My nephew did that. And like I said, I bring in even high school students mm -hmm. and they work with my with my team mm -hmm. and they get that experience. God, I wish I had had that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So it's available now. Someone somewhere along the line figured out that would probably be a good idea. And so now students can get that exposure and can decide whether or not, well, you know, I'm good in science. I like science. Should I be a clinician or should I do research? In the past, it was like, if you're good in science, well, what, of course you're going to be a clinician, mm -hmm. which is why I was pre-med. It turned out I'm not suited to it. I can't handle having the next person, no matter who they are, no matter how they act, walk in my door and I have to treat them. That would kill me. <laughs> I get to pick and choose who goes through my door. Sure. Come into my lab. I get to control my environment. Yeah. Much prefer that. I was on the wrong path mm. and I was on the wrong path partly because I didn't do a whole lot of digging and partly because there the, all that information wasn't staring me in the face. So I think that's a major thing that's changed. Students get an opportunity to see that research is an option. Sure. And, and if, if you like puzzles, that's the place you should go. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by me, Tammy Katzoff, Associate Director of the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded on location and engineered by Paul Kremposky at the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. Happy holidays and stay tuned for more 2400 Chew in 2020.